First Peter chapter four. We're going to be picking up where we left off at verse seven. Put your finger there, and I will eventually get there. We'll ask the Lord for some grace. Now, Heavenly Father, as we turn our hearts toward heaven to consider this God-breathed word that's living and alive and sharp like a sword, we're grateful, God, that your word can do the work because we need work in our hearts and in our minds. So cleanse us, wash our minds, and renew our hope through the power of the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Insider trading, as most of you know, is a kind of white-collar crime. It's when someone uses inside or secret information not available to the public to either buy or sell stocks. Now, that special inside knowledge is considered unfair to other investors because with this insider information, they can either make a fortune or save themselves from losing one. But inside trading is completely legal. However, once that kind of information has been made public, so you can get a major scoop, like let's say a coming turn of events or something like that, and as long as the public has access to that information, you're free to buy and sell to your heart's content, even if you work for the company itself. Now, interestingly, in a figurative sense, spiritually speaking, the Lord Jesus encourages his followers to be inside traders. In fact, he likens the Christian life and service to investors. He calls us God's investors. We are his brokers. He has given us a capital, our lives, our gifts, our abilities, our resources. And he says in two parables, Luke 19 and Matthew 25, he likens the Christian life to you giving, uh, been given a chance to uh, trade and to use those resources of yours in a stewardship capacity. And then at his coming, you will stand before him with an evaluation where there will be profit and loss. As a Christian, you will never be condemned, but there will be profit and loss depending on your faithfulness or lack thereof. And so the Lord here in 1 Peter, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, echoing Jesus' ideas here, that here's some inside information. The end of history as we know it is approaching. The imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ is a certainty, and there will be an evaluation coming, and based on how we invested our lives, great fortunes will be realized for good stewardship, faithfulness to God, and devastating losses will also be realized for those living for themselves and sin and unbelief. So the difference between the two at the end of the age, will be one thing and one thing only. Those who uh, listened to the inside scoop and were faithful with that knowledge, who acted on the inside information, and those who disregarded it. So here in First Peter uh, chapter 4, we're picking up this theme of how to live the rest of your life, meaning from conversion on, because that's when our life begins, at conversion to Christ, how to live that in a worthwhile way, that at the end of your life, in light of what God has revealed, the inside scoop, so now you have that information, and it is, P.S., legal, because it is public information, uh, and in light of what God has revealed about the future and how everything's going to come down, Peter's been saying, we have to live in ways that maximize gains and minimize Losses, And we do that by not having our roots here in this life, but to be citizens of heaven, mere foreigners in this life. Picking up at verse 7. The end of all things 
is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So where there's an amen, I kind of like to stop and reflect because it kind of signals an end of a little thought that's going on here. And so we are going to consider these words this morning for our reflection and some practical application. We'll talk about insider information. He says we have it on a reliable source that there's a big change coming. Heads up. A break with all that's come before. It's called the end. Here's how you must live now in order to be rewarded on that new day. The Bible is saying, here's how to be sitting pretty when the trumpet sounds and time shall be no more. And so really, from this inside information that the end is drawing near, and we're going to talk about what that means, comes three exhortations, and that will serve as this morning's uh, points. Number one, exhortation. In light of this inside information that there is a visible uh, end coming, number one, you must be thinking clearly. Number two, you must be loving deeply. And number three, you must be serving faithfully. Interesting that when he says the end is near, that he doesn't start charting things and describing how it will come down. Instead of saying the end is here, therefore you better you know, get some uh, water reserves and rations and things like this, and you guys better you know, watch how you're living your life and be very conservative and all of this. He says, no, the end is near, therefore let me tell you how to live how to live right so that when it does happen, you will be in uh, good stead there. So number one, thinking clearly. Right thinking will always produce right behavior. Christians are exhorted to live today with an eye toward the prize, an eye toward the future reality. So here in verse 7, Peter makes this bold claim about the future, a claim that's intended to shape the behavior of his readers. He wants a reaction, and what a way to get one. The claim, the end of all things is near. Well, you know, that's just, that's just a wasabi moment. All right, now, what I mean by that is if you're not a sushi fan, uh, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you are, listen, I love sushi. I was just out the other night for some sushi, and I happened to put a little too much of the wasabi, which I love, on the piece of sushi. And I'm talking, and suddenly, it's just like Mount Vesuvius erupted through my brain. You know, this green horseradish, it, it'll just clear your head. <laughs> And this is exactly, spiritually speaking, what the Holy Spirit wants to happen to your soul. The end of all things is near. It ought to do that. And if it doesn't do that, then something's wrong with you. Because if we take the Bible for what it is, the Word of God... He's trying to get your attention so that you will be clear-headed. That's exactly, wow, woo, what did I just hear? Oh, I better do something about the information that I'm receiving. 
So first of all, our reality, we need to talk about before we get to the clear thinking, what on earth does he mean, quite literally, of the end is near? Well, our reality is not defined by how things appear in this fallen world, but by what God's word declares. He's always giving us a heads up. Literally speaking, he says, uh, John chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 7, look, Look up, he is coming with the clouds and glory, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will grieve because of him. So shall it be, amen. And so here's this information that this life, this masquerade party is coming to an end, this facade, this false existence of a world will be superseded by the real thing at a great reversal where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In Daniel chapter 2, the king of the then earth, Nebuchadnezzar, had this dream where he saw a figure that represented all the kingdoms of the world in the last days. And then he saw this rock that no human being carved out. Just this rock made without the help of human hands, falling from the heavens and crushing this image. And this is what Daniel says about that dream. In those last days, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that falls from heaven. The great God has shown what will take place in the future. Insider information. This all looks like this is the way things are. But he says, oh no, there's a kingdom that's coming that will displace all the others. And that, with that information, we're supposed to do something about that. That's the theme of First Peter, is not to have our roots and our heart and our treasure all wrapped up in the things of this earth and in this fallen, sinful world, because there's no future for it. So heads up, if you want to make good your investment, you don't invest in something that is, from inside information, not going to be around too much longer. You see, that is what's going on here. You know, John says, 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2 rather, it says, Don't love this fallen world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the pride of life. Listen to this. That all that belongs to the world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so, you know, the whole world now, according to 1 John, uh, the whole world lies under the spell of the evil one. This is a world where the things that are detestable to God are highly esteemed among men, but this is all going to change. This fallen, sin-laden, Christ-rejecting world is not our home, and it's ordained to have a last day. And the Bible is constantly saying in 2,500 references directly and indirectly that that day has been appointed and is drawing near. Now, what does he mean by the end? Well, it's more than you think. After the fall, God let human history unfold. Actually, he became a part of human history, stepping into humanity through the virgin womb of Mary. He entered human history itself with a purpose to save the world. He has now done that. And so from a redemptive history point of view, all previous acts in the drama of saving the world are done. God's, God has had a plan. That plan has had a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning, creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel and the dispersing of the nations, the calling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Beginning, done. Middle, the 12 sons of Jacob called Israel. 
and the kingdom of Israel established in the promised land, the exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law, the conquering of Canaan, the kings and the prophets, the exile in Babylon and the return. Middle, check, done, last. The birth of Christ, the Messiah, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to establish the church. That's the end. Check. Done. Complete. The word in the Greek for the end is telos, and it means an accomplished goal has been reached. Maturity, fullness of completion and fulfillment. The way Jesus uses the word taleo, same word, on the cross, it is finished. It's the end. Done. Salvation has been procured. There is nothing left. Zero. Except one thing. A trumpet. That's it. That is why the scriptures can say, as they do, and brings a little bit of confusion to the unenlightened and the immature, the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken through his son. Oh, it's the last days through his son, Jesus. And then again in chapter 9, Jesus has appeared at the end of the age to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, when did Jesus appear? At, according to the Bible, at the end of the age. That means it's the end of the age. When Jesus appeared, it was the end of the age. There's nothing to come further because it's called the end. So everything that followed, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all he said, it's done, it's finished. Go and bring as many as will in until you hear the sound. That's the only thing that separates us from the appointed end of all things is a twinkling of the eye. That is it. God is done. He is not raising up Israel. He doesn't need to do anything else. He just needs to open the door and say, da-da-da-da, done. And the Bible says, yeah, I'm not sure that it'll go exactly like that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will sound. The Lord shall appear and we shall be changed. That's why he can say the end is near, because the end is near. There's nothing else except a trumpet sound or a flash of an eye or your beating heart. One beat away from the end of all things. One heartbeat. Done. You're there. One trumpet sound. Done. Life's done. Now let's talk about how faithful you were with what I've given you. This is the message of the Bible. Insider trading. We've got this information. He goes, buy, buy heavenly, buy heavenly. Sell earth, sell earth, sell, sell. There should be a run going on. But we're like, oh, you know what? Oh, this promise has been for since our fathers and their fathers fell asleep. Oh, it's 2,000 years of nearness. And then Peter says, ah, you are being a fool. What you don't understand is God's timetable. He is not slow as some would count slowness. He is patient, not willing that anybody perish. He's letting humanity unfold. And everybody that was supposed to have a chance and a choice, who did not have a chance and a choice, in our father Adam and in our, in our mother Eve. We had no choice. We died in them. You will die the day you eat. They ate. They died spiritually. 
and those in their loins, as it were, me and you, dead, spiritually stillborn. And he says, let's just give those folks embedded in Adam and Eve a run for their money. And then at the last day, nobody's going to say, oh, how fair was that? I didn't even get a chance. Look what Adam did and look what Eve did. I didn't do it. Oh, nobody gets to say that anymore because now everybody will have had a choice. And that's how God seems to be working. And he says, in light of this information, number one, get a grip. That's what the word means. Two verbs that mean the same thing. This should be familiar ground because Peter's been kind of repeating himself here. The one idea, two verbs, mental preparedness. The words are clear-minded and self-control. They kind of mean the same thing. The word in the Greek for clear-minded, in light of being an end-time person, means to live with sanity. That's the word, to be sane. In fact, it's the same word where after legion is cast out of the man in the tombs of the Gadarenes, and he was running wild, naked, gashing himself with rocks out of his mind, profane, pathetic, tormented. And Jesus cast the legion out of him. And then he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Same word. Same word. It's the opposite of being wacko. That... (laughs) Honestly, the, the opposite in the Greek is mania, where we get the word maniac, right? And so he's saying, look, when you're in the end times, you're going to have a little bit of a motivating factor to go a little bit crazy, not only because of the persecution that rises up, but because of the environment of the last days, which... Jesus clearly lays out in Matthew 24, it's going to get a little bit difficult. Famines, earthquakes, natural disasters, wars, rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom, massive spiritual deception and false prophets. And he says, but you stay sane. The other word self-control means sober, sober sober-minded, not distracted, well-balanced, undulled. Serious-minded in the, in the environment of this chaos, spiritually speaking, massive spiritual deception. And we have that going on even today. For the time will come, and now is, when men will not put up with sound doctrine like you have here, teaching straight through the Bible. They won't put up with that. Instead, they'll want something like more emergent More emergent means the emergent church is now a movement that says, you know, the church is emerging out of the old orthodoxy and into a new realm where we can't really know what the scriptures really say. That is their definition. A time is coming, Jesus said, but you keep your head, keep it screwed on tight. That's the word, to be sane and grounded in the word. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And same word, sound mind. Not blown away by every time somebody does something crazy. Like, look at this. I've got one arm shorter than the other. And now pray for me. And, and oh, look at that. I just saw a limb grow in front of my own eyes. I am quoting somebody who recently just went to one of those meetings that's connected with a church that's called Bethel Church in Reading. And it's moving this way. And what they find is gold dust all over the place and in their pores and diamonds appearing and angel feathers falling on the congregation. They sent the feathers to a bird expert. And the guy says, sends a letter back and says, they're bird feathers. (laughs) Unbelievers, scoffers. That's the answer to that. 
writhing on the floor like a bunch of crazy animals out of their minds. Diamonds and bird feathers and limbs that are growing. Keep your sanity. It is coming close. It is in our neighborhood. I have friends who are going there and they're all confused. They're such nice people and they have such good intentions and we want to see the power of God. Jesus didn't say go searching after signs and wonders. He said a wicked and adulterous people go searching after signs and wonders and feathers and, and, and gold dust. Please. More like a carnival show. Stay in the word of God. And instead of praying for somebody's limbs to grow, pray that your, your holiness would grow and the love for Christ would grow longer and deeper and wider. Amen? amen. If you didn't say amen right there, I'm going to call one of you to come up here and I'm going to be taking a break. He says, keep a grip on your brain so you can pray. Warren Wiersbe. An expectant attitude toward Jesus' return involves a serious, balanced mind, an alert, awake prayer life. Our end-time devotion is not about drawing charts necessarily or running after so-called signs. It's about clear thinking and solid praying and holy living. If we're thinking and praying, and that's right, our living should be right. Can I just say, by the way, God can do anything he wants. The gifts and the power of God all for today. But let us be a church that looks for the power of God to transform our hearts and our minds, that we are more service-oriented, that we are more loving and kind and more Christ-like and more dead to sin, and when there's a revival because we're not going after porn, and not smoking weed and calling ourselves Christian, and not going out and getting drunk and saying, praise the Lord on Sunday. Why don't you tell me a little bit of that kind of revival instead that your one hand went like that? Excuse me, I'm out of control. Now, <laughs> you need to pray this prayer for me. Lord... Sanity, sanity. All right. Number two, loving deeply. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So he's saying, listen, clear head, sober thinking, so you can pray. And let me just start you out with number one thing to pray about is a love that comes from God. It's really the most misunderstood concept in Christianity, what true love is. We say in English, oh, I love my home, I love pumpkin pie, which is true. I love Christmas music, another true statement. I've already started. <laughs> Christmas music is everywhere, as it should be right now. I love hamburgers. I love my wife, I love Jesus, I love the Bible, I love my children, and I love frozen yogurt. <laughs> it's a problem in English, but it's not a problem in Greek. This love is the highest love. It's called agape. It's a love like none other. It's not a human love. It, you cannot have it unless you pray. Because God gives it, it's not that we love God, it's that he first loved us and demonstrated that love by sending a son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the kind of love, it's been defined as an unconditional concern for another's highest good. It loves for the sake of loving, wanting and expecting nothing in return. Agape love never says, well, what about me? Never. Just doesn't. Jesus never said, hey, what about me? Come on, man. Serving everybody every day, every night. What about me? What about my needs? I'm feeling so used. That's not agape love. That, he doesn't have that kind of love. We, that's human love. 
Human love is all about, i got to feel it because I can fall into it and I can fall out of it. You better watch yourself because when it feels good and it's easy and it's convenient and I'm getting what I need, oh, and then I'm in love. But don't mess with me. Don't not respond to me in the right way. Don't give me what I need in this relationship or I'm going to fall out of love with you. I'm going to wake up one day and say, you know what? I don't know if I really do love you. Agape love signed on the dotted line and said, I do. And I always will. No matter what. Hello, the vows. Good times, bad times. When you gain weight, when you... Gain weight. <laughs> I couldn't find the opposite of that. Because usually when you're losing weight and you look good, that's not the problem. Full head of hair and knots. That's agape love, something we know zero about and he says this is the kind of love and he says deeply love exercise this kind of love that God has poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that comes from heaven it's a fruit of the spirit it's not a fruit of human effort so the word here is ectenes where we get the word extend and it means stretched out like an athlete who's training his muscle is taught in an effort to do something. He's saying, this kind of love needs to be exercised to its fullest strength because in the end times, if you're going to be a united, harmonious, loving community, you're going to need that kind of God-warrior kind of I-do, period, kind of love. Because as the heat rises and needs become... Uh, apparent in the congregation, then love seems to grow cold. When things are rough, it's harder to be sweet and kind and patient. He says, oh, not with God's love. So above all, number one, keep your head straight so you can pray and let that fruit of God's love be stretched all the way to cover over the thousand little petty grievances that can happen in a 24-hour period. I call them relational fender benders. <laughs> now, let me say this, okay? We all have a me monster moment, or plural. <laughs> Christians, mis <laughs> Christians misspeak. They... <laughs> exclude people. They blow off steam and say stupid things, things that they should never have said. They can be self-absorbed, insecure, jealous, envious, rude, unkind and mean-spirited and critical and negative and lazy. Hurtful, insensitive, proud, and unhelpful, obnoxious, blind to our own faults, and obsessed with yours. Stretch out that warrior love so that every little glance isn't misunderstood as something suspicious. What did they mean? Did you see the way she looked at me? Are you kidding me? How do you know the way she looked at you? You know what? She didn't even see you. She didn't even know you were in the room. And then you're saying, my point exactly. You know, you can, <laughs> you can never win if you're not filled with the spirit of agape. Every little thing is subject to go be taken the wrong way and to cause trouble. I saw two guys on the freeway. They had a little fender bender. You know, going home from here is always kind of stop and go on 101. And I see these two cars, and I looked, and this guy was making a scene. And I couldn't wait to see what was going on in the middle, commensurate to all of that passion. And when I looked, I kept looking, and there was nothing. There was nothing. Nothing with his car or the other car. And the younger guy was like... <laughs> 
looking like, look at it, like what? And the other guy, red in the face and steam coming out. The opposite of agape wants to just go, oh, well, listen, we're going to let this die right here so that this poisonous seed cannot grow and take root and spring up and cause a lot of other problems. Do you know how hard, I'm listening to you, you're saying, do you know how hard that is when you are wronged and insulted and left out and they knew exactly what they were doing and you just want me to just turn a blind eye and just cover it over in this wonderful love? Yeah. That's what Jesus did. He went all the way to the cross to what? To cover you. And he says, I laid down my life for you. I want you to lay down your life. Now, this doesn't mean we condone evil or sin. It doesn't mean we cover up things that need to be brought into the light. Common sense. We're talking about all of those petty offenses and sometimes big ones that need forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. That's the idea there. Genesis chapter 9, something happened that none of us should have never heard about. Nobody should have known it was nobody's business. Bible hero had a me moment. He had a long day. He opened a bottle of wine and he kind of kept drinking. And whoops, he forgot to put his jammies on. <laughs> Noah. And he falls asleep in his own tent, kind of uncovered, uncovered. And one of the boys, an evil little snot-nosed punk, <laughs> his name is Ham. And Ham goes in there and goes, oh, oh. And he goes out, and let's not cover over that with love. Let's uncover that, and let's tell the boys, and let's bring it up so it has to be in the word of God that every single person who will ever see Noah will have to think, oh, wow, mm, that night, oh, yeah, oh. Not that we are going to think of that, because I think all of that goes away when we get there. However, we all had to talk about it, didn't we? All because a one person couldn't think in a loving way. That is my father. What is a loving thing to do? How would I want other people to see me in a moment of that? It's not very flattering. Like the two brothers with agape sense of love goes into that tent backward with a blanket. Come on, bro. Let's do it the right way. And they back up. They never saw it. It never happened. Covered over, Dad. Christians. Oh, I'm just sharing so people can pray as I uncover their nakedness because I want everybody to know they did me wrong. And now don't I look so much better than them? That's not agape love. Love one another deeply. It covers a multitude of sins. And just remember, and it's very hard to do, when people are sinning and in rebellion to God, we do not lock arms with them. That is not loving. We do not have fellowship with people who are being rebel rebels and being immoral and disgracing God's name. We do not have kindred BFF fellowship with them. We love them. We fellowship with them in the sense of a mission to them. There's a difference between loving somebody and reaching out a hand to them and being cordial and kind and hospitable than to leaking arms and being BFFs like nothing's happened and loving them, patting them on the back, even though they're straight on a collision course with hell. You gotta think about that. I'll let the Holy Spirit uh, tell us where to go. And then f with that, that's kind of a hard thing to do. But some people just say, oh, love covers everything. Love's okay, you can do whatever you want. Just be careful, because I'm not saying that, and neither is the scripture. 
Last point. Now, thinking clearly so you can pray loving deeply so we can get along with one another and serving faithfully. So here, God has put gifts and abilities into the hearts and lives of his people to benefit and strengthen the church who will need that in the last days. And so in you resides a gift, at least one. That's what the Bible says. You have an ability that God gave you that nobody else can do like you do, period. And you will not find it by being introspective. You will find it by serving and stepping out. That's where you find your gifts and your calling. But he says everybody's got one. He goes, I see what's coming. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be hard. And so I've deposited into my church, the people, gifts and abilities for, listen to this, the benefit of the whole. So when you're struggling with that one thing that arises, oh, there's somebody who has a gift from me that will take care of that issue. And the body will be blessed. It's the most wonderful thing. And he starts with hospitality. It's a word that combines two Greek words, phelos and xenos, which means to be friendly to strangers. And so really hospitality is an interesting word. You know, I've heard it said some folks make you feel at home and others make you wish you were. (laughs) It's a gift folks, and it was very, very important in the first and second centuries, uh, major, majorly because in Acts chapter 8, a great persecution arose. All of Jerusalem, all the Christians were in Jerusalem, and they had to scatter for their very lives. And Acts chapter 8 says something interesting. As they scattered... They went preaching the gospel wherever they went. And this is how God disseminated the gospel through first century times. It's through Christian persecution. Therefore, hospitality, when he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, where else are these Christians going to stay? Inns were very expensive, they were filthy, and they were immoral. And so, for the first 200 years of the church... There was no church building. 200 years of, do you have a big room in your home? 200 years in people's homes. Housing itinerant preachers of the gospel. Oh, just a huge need. And the word really means a lot more than just hosting. It's an open-heartedness, a graciousness, a warm a warmth that says, you matter to me, you're important to me, how can I make you feel at home, even if you're standing right in front of me? Somebody will see somebody sitting by themselves and say, hey, hey, come sit with us. That's hospitality. Hey, do you need a ride? Hey, do you you want to stay on our couch a couple nights? You want to come over for a meal? Hospitality is a fruit of love and also a fruit of clear thinking and prayer. And so he goes on to use those gifts, and he just says here, the last kind of wrapping things up, each one of you has a special ability from God. You must use these abilities for the sake of others. I'm coming up to an important part here. Serving them with seriousness and faithfulness, drawing on the strength from God so that Jesus will receive the glory But what I want to call your attention to, and we've come full circle to insider trading, as good stewards, verse 10. He's given you something to invest. You have something that I need. I have something and I do something that you need. We're incomplete without you and without me. There are probably 150 people that work to make this happen right now. And if you count giving to keep the doors open and to keep our our ever-expanding church of 11 employees, four of them are full-time, if you count giving the gift of generosity, then you've got 250 people who are all working, using their gifts and abilities and being faithful to invest so that this moment happens. 
Usually all you do is you see this moment and don't realize the backbone of this moment happens by faithful investing and stewardship of the IT guys, of the creative hospitality ladies and, and men that serve in those ways. The parking, the ushering, the greeting, the kids' church. Josh and Liz have not been in service for two months. They've given up that, and the children's ministry workers that alternate in there. There's 25 people over there right now that are making this able to happen because they're using their gifts and their abilities. And there are 20 listed in the Bible, three different lists, Ephesians 4, uh, Romans chapter 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Those are the three big lists. There's a, a second list here in 1 Peter 4. The Bible does not give an exhaustive list of gifts. It says, here are the major ones. Like Peter's doing right now, he's saying there are upfront gifts like the speaking gifts, and there are behind-the-scenes gifts like the serving gifts. And so he's saying, whatever gift you have, whatever you bring to the table, you should do it as an investment broker with the inside knowledge that the end is coming and you're going to stand before God and you can have something to be rewarded about if you invest. It's the guy in the parables in Luke 19 and Matthew 25 that, that come up short. Oh, I knew you were kind of strict, and so I took my money and I buried it in the ground. I didn't do anything. And the Lord says, yeah, exactly. You embezzled from me. I gave you something for everybody, and you took it and spent it on yourself. That's called embezzlement. You know, once in a while, I'll run into somebody. It happens. The church is growing <laughs> And I'm out and about, and I run, boom, face. And it's always like, boom, like that, face-to-face -face with somebody who, let's say, doesn't really attend regularly like they should. And it's awkward. I think more awkward for me, but that's another story. Because I, I'm like, <laughs> I don't care. I don't, it's not, I'm not here checking up on you. I, I mean, I care, but I'm not, do you know what I'm saying? All right. And so this person says to me, look, Pastor Ross, I don't have a big conviction about Sunday morning church. I'm, and this just, just happened, I'm okay. I've got this on my iPhone. I've got this on my iTunes. I've got this kind of thing I read. I have this supply here. I have this and that, and I do this and that. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. No, really, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm, I'm, I'm so, oh, I'm, don't worry about me, I, myself, I. And then finally, I just can't take it anymore. What about the church? What about us and the gift God gave you that makes us benefited? That's what he's saying here. Each one of you needs to use the gifts and abilities, not always the ones that we want to use when we want to use them, but as need arises, there is something that every single person in this room can do. Encourage. Every person in this room could have woken up this morning and got on their knees and said, give me three people to encourage today at church. Instead of the mindset, who's going to come and talk to me? And is this a friendly church or not? And count the people walking by that don't say hello. The goal ought to be, let me count how many I can say hello to. That's the way you start to buy and trade and sell. So in the end, when the trumpet sounds, you can say, oh, I made some right choices and I made some good investments. There's not a soul in this room that couldn't use a word an encouraging word, a word of wisdom, somebody to pray. There's not one person in here that wouldn't like to have an arm around the shoulder and say, wow, come a long way. Keep up the good work. Not one. Churches just come in, go out. Not our church. We don't do that. The bells go off and everybody just wants to yak, yak, yak. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's really, really nice. Let me close with uh, Martha Stewart. 
Let me talk to you about Martha's inside training. And I want you to imitate her. I don't want you to go to jail like she did. But I want you to Christianize what she did. Because she did a smart thing. It was, an, it was illegal, <laughs> but it was smart. Let me tell you what she did. Back in 2002 or so, along with her stockbroker, she got some inside information. Her stockbroker said, hey, listen, there's this drug. It's going to be a breakthrough for cancer. You got some extra money? She said, I got 200000 Put it into that. It's called I'm clone. Put it into pharmaceutical company I'm clone. Here's my 200000 Hope it does well. Oh, yeah. It's going to do well. That was public knowledge. No crime committed. Oh, but then somebody at I'm clone found out that the FDA said, about this new cancer drug, two thumbs down. Somebody at I'm clone said, psst, to Merrill Lynch. And Merrill Lynch's broker said, oh, I got Martha Stewart's 200 grand in that company. Ding dong, Martha, heads up. Two thumbs down from the FDA. Get out. She gets out. The next day, the FDA says, two thumbs down. Stocks drop 16%. Her 200,000, now safe, out, would have lost $45,000. She's safe. She got the tip. She saw it was, boom, okay, pull out. And then she's sitting pretty. And everybody's going, oh, I just ate $45,000 or more. Martha was sipping a martini. <laughs> and it was beautiful, beautifully arranged. <laughs> it had a designer uh, pimento and a little umbrella thingy. I don't know what you do with martinis. Heads up, God says, oh, the end's coming. Reliable source, God. Sell. Not necessarily, literally. Pull out. You're going to lose it all. Jesus' words, if your heart is in earthly treasures and your reward is in this life, how great your devastation... Put your investment in heaven where thieves can't break in and take it from you and the stock market can't crash. You'll be safe because where your treasure is, thank you. I was going to put heart first. Where your treasure is, there also your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to hear it and to preach it and it's so hard to live it. May you, by your spirit, factor in all the details and the, the application of this word into each and every heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.